is hard to save money these days. And I'm not just talking about the new phones and earbuds that come out this time of year and tempt you to spend. Interest rates are really low, which is great if you're borrowing to buy a house or a car, but not so awesome if you want to save. The interest rate for the typical U.S. savings account is nine hundredths of a percent. But all is not lost. For a long time, there have been higher rates for savers, even from mainstream banks, if you can find them. Now a young and scrappy group of tech startups are pushing the boundaries further with interest rates at about 2%. That's 20 times higher than is typical. It's the difference between earning 16 bucks a month on $10,000 in savings or earning just 75 cents. And that's just the beginning. There are cheaper ways to trade stocks also. There are ways to make money off of your credit cards. And today, we're going to help you put a plan together. Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am John Fort from CNBC, here at the NASDAQ market site, overlooking Times Square. With me this week, CNBC's personal finance expert, Sharon Epperson, and joining us in just a couple of minutes from San Francisco, Ken Lin, CEO of Credit Karma, which has just announced it's la uh, launching one of these high-yield savings accounts. Uh, Sharon, great to have you back. Good to be here. Okay, so... Um, Let's set this up. The U.S. Uh, personal savings rate in August was 8.1%. That's what was left after people bought stuff and paid taxes. But an online survey of 5,000 U.S. adults last year from Go Banking Rates found about half of us have less than $1,000, less than $1,000 in a savings account. About half of those have nothing in a savings account. Does that, that sound plausible to you? It sounds plausible. It may seem surprising, but it's unfortunate a lot of people don't realize how important it is to have something tucked away because you never know what may happen. Even the Federal Reserve said the average American cannot pay for a $400 unexpected expense. Why? They have no savings. They don't have enough savings to cover it. And so this is creating a big problem because when you have a robust economy and people are still paying off credit card debt, not able to pay their balance in full every month. That also lets you know that they're probably not saving enough. That's why they're not able to do that. And when things turn, whether it's markets, the economy, you lose your job, right. you're in trouble. All right, so, so these high-yield savings accounts, or at least, you know, relatively high-yield, right, as high as you can get right, these days, right. they, they should be a good thing. Wealthfront announced one at the beginning of this year that they say a, a bunch of people have piled money into. Credit Karma announced one last week. Robinhood announced sort of one this week. All are FDIC-insured. What should people watch out for with these things? Well, one of the main things to watch out for is to make sure that you understand what it means that they're FDIC insured. These are. That's what you want when you go with an online bank or financial institution. You want to make sure that the money that you've deposited is covered up to $250,000 per account per depositor. That's what the FDIC insurance means. Mm. You also want to make sure that you're at a place that is going to be able to Keep your money, you have it in savings, but if you need access to it, what are any of the fees that might be incurred? So you have to always read the fine print on that. And then also realize that 2% is much better that you're, than you're going to get in a traditional brick-and-mortars bank, but it's still not really keeping up with inflation. So how much money do you want to have in that savings account versus how much may you want to have invested in something else that may be more conservative than a stock, a mutual fund stock ETF or the stock market, but still give you a little bit more peace of mind? All right. And to talk some more about savings, let's bring in Credit Karma's CEO, Ken Lin, joining us from San Francisco. Ken, great to see you again. Good afternoon. So um, you, you've got about 100 million people in Credit Karma, right? 12 years right. old. 
uh, and, and free credit scores, if I recall, was your initial hook. And the way you guys make money is, you know, once people are on your, your platform, you refer them to credit cards or mortgages or um, insurance, uh, other services that people want to offer them. Is that fair? That's correct, yeah. So, you know, for 12 years, we've been really helping consumers understand their credit. Uh, we've helped over 90 million consumers access their credit. And, uh, you know, we think there's an opportunity for a second, uh, second chapter to the story. Why savings? Why not stocks? Why not? Uh, why'd you pick savings? Well, I mean, I think everything you just alluded to, right? You know, America really is in a little bit of a savings crisis. You know, roughly 28% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, to your note. You know, about half of Americans don't have $500 in a savings account. If you really think about that, that is one car accident. That is one trip to the emergency room where if you don't, that, uh, if you don't have those dollars, you end up in a downward spiral. And when we think about our opportunity to make a difference in people's lives, we really felt like helping you know, the 99% of Americans who don't have access to the very best rates, who don't have access uh, to these typically you know, more uh, high-end uh, savings products, we felt like that was a great opportunity for us to build something that was meaningful. Do you think, Ken, with people being able to have access to a savings account on a site that also tells them what the best credit card is for them based on their rates, that they're going to be spending more time actually trying to pay down that debt? Do, is there any way that these are, products are going to be linked for people on your site? Well, you know, I think long term that's certainly the view, right? So. You know, what, what we see in this space is that finances are hard. They're complicated. There's a lot of nuance to it. And our hope and our vision here is that by leveraging the cloud, leveraging technology, we can really simplify a lot of the payments. We can simplify a lot of the areas where people get in trouble. So, for example, think about just auto pay, right? Very simple idea. But so many people miss payments out of sheer habit. And if you can automate that payment, that makes a difference in people's lives. And that you know, helps them maintain their credit, which lowers their cost of borrowing, which we all know makes a big difference. So simple ideas like that go a long way. And what we are very focused on is changing habits. So when going back to this notion of savings, you know, it's a little bit like brushing your teeth. If you can start at an early age and you can save $10 a month, that habit will make a difference by the time you're 30 or 40 years old. And that's really what we're focused on at Credit Karma. The one thing I like, Ken, is that it is a savings product and there is no checking account associated with it, correct? Yeah, that's right. So the, the product that we launched last week is a high-yield savings account. You can open an account in as little four clicks. Uh, we partnered with uh, a network of over 800 banks. We look at the interest rate in that network each and every month and we try to adjust and sort of provide the best product out there in that space. I think to your note uh, around FDIC, we're actually FDIC up to $5 million. Uh, there's no fees for the product. Uh, there's no hidden fees. There's no minimums. Uh, and it's $5 million so really, because, really felt because you spread the money out among those 800 banks. Is that right? That's exactly right. And you know, like we're, we're not sure if we're going to get $5 million deposits. But we wanted to give a sense of how big that network is. And we really wanted to differentiate our product from everyone else in the space. Yeah. One of the reason why I asked about the checking and, and the savings is yeah. that one thing, I, one strategy I think that helps build that discipline is not being able to get access quickly to the money. So if you're in a traditional brick and mortars bank where you have a savings account and a checking account, being able to transfer funds, dip into the money, it's a lot easier and it's just, you see it all there right there on your sheet that you have money in these different accounts. Having it somewhere separate 
whether it is Credit Karma or another online bank that's not the same bank that you're doing your checking with, is a way that I think many people are able to build savings and not tap into something that's supposed to be something that they've tucked away. Now, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Sharon, because I think Robinhood, with what they're coming out with, they have this debit card mm -hmm. that's tied to the account. And, and I they, think that's dangerous. They, they tried to launch something like this back in December, but they didn't exactly have their ducks in a row when mm -hmm. it comes to regulation either. So you, you think that people should pay attention not just to the interest rate here, but the terms and think about what's going to help them reach their goals. Exactly. Just because it's a high interest rate doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best product for you. What are some of the other things that are offered along with this product? Are there educational tools on there that are going to help you figure out how to budget, figure out how to make sure that you're paying these bills on time? Is the automation what you need? All of those things are things to consider because just because it's a great interest rate doesn't mean it's necessarily the right product for you. All right, Ken, let, let me get cynical with you for, for a minute. You guys already have sure. a good amount of data on me. I've been using Credit Karma for years. I like to check my credit scar scores like, like everybody else should, I guess. <laughs> um, but then if you also know how much money I'm saving, what data are you going to have in addition to what you already have on people? And what are you going to do with it? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And, you know, we've made no qualms about what we do for what data. We, we are very explicit. Now, specific to the savings product, we are not doing anything with that data. Our point of view on this particular product is we fundamentally believe that, you know, consumers, and I would say, again, the 99% of consumers who don't have access to these types of products, they deserve something better. When you look at just the sheer amount of innovation that has happened in financial services, very little of it is around savings, and we felt like this was an opportunity for us to do that. So I appreciate the cynicism, and, I, and everyone should. They should question what the business model is. For us, we've gotten to enough scale where we can offer this product, and we think it fundamentally is right for a vast majority of Americans so, by, by just building a product that drives engagement. So not even asset verification for signing up for stuff? Or or even offering people to do that in advance. Yeah, we can tell you that this person has $5,000 in a savings account. We can, we can vouch for that because we can look into their savings account. You're not even doing that? We're not doing any of that today. And, and I say today because we really have focused the last year and a half of our product development cycle on getting this product out to everyone. Uh, we focused on the low cost, or actually the zero cost. We focused on the ease of use. So that is where all of our product efforts are. We have not thought about the monetization. We have not invested in any of those product developments other than getting a great product out to the vast majority of Americans. Are there any safeguards in there or, or I guess, caveats that people should know about once you put your money in there? If you do need to get it out for an emergency, or you, do you have to have it Save, have it saved and established for a certain period of time? Is there a charge? What are the fees involved with this type of account? Yeah, so, so really great question. So no fees, right? No overdraft fees, no hidden fees, no minimums. But you do bring up a very important point, which is because it is actually socked away in a different account, uh, we are limited by ACA transfer times. So for example, what the current system of uh, transference, that, so it, there might be a one to three day delay in accessing those dollars. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a dual-edged sword. I think you know, readily accessible dollars means it's readily accessible and you might be tempted to spend it. Um, I, I think that's the negative. Um, the positive of that means is you can actually silo it and you can actually compartmentalize it. And I think that's what a lot of Americans do in general. But I think fundamentally from my psychology perspective, savings is very much about that end goal. 
And we built this product so that you can think about that end goal of saving for something meaningful and building that habit of not spending every dollar that you have. Ken, a lot of these accounts like Credit Karma, and I don't know about Credit Karma, so I'm going to ask you, they don't allow you to do automatic uh, deposit from your paycheck into these accounts because they're not set up like an individual bank. Is yours the same in that, yeah, you can do a, a recurring uh, deposit from another bank account into this, but I can't say, uh, go to my employer and say, hey, here's a routing number, an account number for Credit Karma, send this money to them every paycheck. Yeah, that's actually recurring deposits is actually a, a feature that we built into launch. So you can actually set it to take $20 every month and put that away into that high yield savings account. And again, this goes back to habit formation and something that we think is fundamentally important to the psyche and also the financial hygiene of Americans. So, you know, if you just simply did that, you know, you can beat that stat. In two years' time, you could have more than half of Americans in a savings account by simply putting $20 away. And that's, you know, four cups of coffee a month, right? Four lattes mm -hmm. a month. And to clarify again, that's, um, so we that's think a deposit from another bank account not taking directly out of somebody's check. They, they can't set that up to go right into this account. That's correct. That's today. But in future product implementations, we certainly expect consumers to be able to do that. Uh, you know, this is our first foray. We wanted to get the simple, simplicity of registration, the no fee structure in place. But long term, we're going to add a lot of bells and whistles to make saving easier and, and you know, really help consumers understand what are good financial habits. Ken, what is the research, though, and the likelihood that people will do that? The reason why I think it is important to be able to do direct deposit from the paycheck is because then they don't see it. But if you put that in a checking account, how often do people actually take that money then out of the checking account after it's, their paycheck has been deposited there and move it to a savings account at an institution that's different than where they do their normal checking or where their paycheck is usually deposited? Well, you know, I think there hasn't been that much research done. I mean, I think if you take a look at what traditionally existed, it's happened in more of the traditional banks and mortars, uh, brick and mortars, and they don't think about it in the same way that we do. So I think we are still trying to understand and appreciate uh, those nuances of, yeah, does putting money away in a separate account really help you? I think the note, though, is, you know, some of the things that we really focus on is education, right? The beginning steps are what really matter. So do you even think about a savings account? Do you even have a savings account? I think that's a first step. I mean, most of us have transactional checking accounts, but do you even think about it from a savings perspective? Uh, another product that we really put out there is what we call our, our savings simulator. So with that, you can actually just see what the power of compound interest is and what happens if you put $20 a month away, what happens when the rate is 2%, when it's 3%, when it's 5%, or when it's 0%. And I think part of this is the habits, but part of it is just education. I think we don't learn about um, simple finance in high school anymore, and we certainly don't learn about it in college. And we think those tools and that education is really powerful. Yeah, and that's what CNBC is for. And Sharon, you that's know me. Exactly right. I've, I've told you before, <laughs> I, I'm a nut when it comes to this stuff. i got about yeah. nine savings and checking accounts yeah. to move money around for specific reasons, so I'm all about it. All right, it's time to get some digits. Uh, it's a time when we like to... Talk about a couple numbers that have caught my eye this week. Siri, what's up first? $4 trillion. $4 trillion. The total amount of outstanding consumer debt, which hit record highs this year. Sharon, uh, we've got a number of different things going on adding to this, it seems. I remember when the longest rate offered on a car loan was like five years. I hear now they're offering 
seven and eight year car loans. Yes. What's going to be the impact of all this debt that people are feeling more and more comfortable taking out because interest rates are so low? The impact is as soon as the tide turns, whether it's in the economy or with their own personal financial situation, losing a job, having a medical emergency, they're not going to be prepared for it. And the level of credit card debt, auto loan debt, student loan debt, um, as that continues to increase so high, people are really going to be caught out there. And that's why having the savings program, knowing wherever you can to be able to put away money you're doing so, is so important particularly when times are actually pretty good. Mm. Ken, are you seeing it? Uh, you got insight into 100 million, probably plus, uh, accounts at yeah. this point in people. In, in terms of the credit scores or the amount of debt that people are taking on, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think that $4 trillion is actually excluding mortgages. So if you add mortgages, it's actually closer to $14 trillion. So we've definitely seen that trend increase. Um, I think the key here is, as, as Sharon mentioned, is you have to have a tool set of financial products available to you. So you have to have a good credit score, right, for when that time hits. You have to have some dollars in savings. So I think these certainly are trends that um, we need to educate consumers against. And, you know, it is one recession. It is one unforeseen thing that gets a vast majority of Americans in trouble. When we look at credit, it is oftentimes that lost job or that medical expense that creates the downward spiral. Certainly there are a percentage of people who don't want to pay their bills, but when you look at the people who go from good credit to poor credit, it's that unexpected life consequence that makes the biggest difference. And our note is prepare for that. All right. Now, Siri, give us the next digit. 60 million. 60 million is the number of Americans having a hard time qualifying for credit cards and other loans. Ken, uh, it seems like when it comes to credit cards, the people who need help the most are not the ones who get the credit cards that help you the most. Uh, you know, it's, it's people with great credit scores and who can afford to pay big upfront fees who get these cards with amazing deals on points and cards that, that pay you back. How much might that be exacerbating inequality? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to credit, like responsibility is the biggest note. Um, you know, what I oftentimes will say is that don't focus on uh, you know, credit cards being the, the, the savior here. What you need to do with credit cards is you need to use them as a tool they are, which is let them be the backbone of building your credit. So don't overextend. Pay off in full every month. right? Don't carry a balance. Never pay interest. If you can do that, you can really start establishing your credit. And I think that's the best utility of credit. And I think people forget that. I think oftentimes people think about it as a tool to finance debt. And it works OK for that. But I think that's where most people get into trouble. And I think particularly people who are in this category of already having a hard time of, of getting credit don't fall into that same trap. And if you're paying 17% interest and you have good credit, because that's probably the average if you have good credit, that is so much interest that you're paying. So even though you think that rates are low or it's not as bad, for credit cards, it keeps going up. If you have a retail credit card and you're paying over 20 25% interest, it's really not a, a bargain for you to be buying that on credit, even if the sales seem so great. So I think people need to realize, I don't know how many people really pay attention to what those rates are. They see that they can pay with plastic. They see a bill that comes to them every month, but they don't pay attention to how much interest they're paying on that, even when it's written in the fine print for them. Sharon, are you one of these points warriors out there where you have a credit card or two for specific things and you, you rack up I points? Do. You okay. know I do. I love getting things on points. 
I love it. And I see it as like, you know, this was a free trip, this was a free hotel, but it wasn't really. What did I spend my money on? I do pay my balance in full every, every time, so I am not carrying interest. But I do have to sometimes also wonder, some of these cards do have an annual fee. So did I take a big enough trip or do enough things that it really pays for itself? Sometimes it does, and sometimes I have, I have one card in particular. I'm just a loyal card holder, so. I just keep it. And Ken, same question to you. Uh, I mean, you're clearly a data guy. You're out there uh, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. Um, are, you, are you a credit card hacker? I am. I mean, if you think about it, there are some amazing protections that credit cards give you, right? So purchase protection is one of those, mm -hmm. right? Um, cash back are the points that you described are one of those, right? Um, when you buy things on the internet, if they're not as expected, the ability to charge back is a big component of it. So building your credit is another great component. So credit cards are amazing if you use them the right way. And I think there's just a percentage of people who don't understand that or who, who can't. And I think that's okay. But in that situation, you need to know yourself. And knowing yourself means if I can't manage credit, means that I should probably move to a debit card and something that I can manage better because I think it is an easy trap to fall into. And we see it all the time. And our note is like know yourself and avoid those traps whenever you can. And know the situation around you, Ken, too. I think we've talked about this. When, it, when your job seems shaky, you're not exactly sure what's going to happen, or you think there may be something coming along that you're going to have to spend a lot of money on, you know, that's the time to put the credit card away and pull out the debit card or use cash. I know no one wants to use cash anymore, but, but there's, a, there's a time for it. And, and it's kind of reading the tea leaves, particularly when your biggest asset, your job, may be in jeopardy. That's when you really want to put those credit cards away before you, something actually happens. And when you want to have money in a savings account exactly. that you can rely on. That's true. Bringing it all full, all circle, full circle from perhaps Credit Karma <laughs> or Wealthfront or, or, or the many names that exactly. we've mentioned. Exactly. Ken, thanks so much for being with us this week. Uh, Sharon Epperson. My pleasure. Always great to have Great you. to be here. Great to talk uh, to you. We've got the CEO of Snowflake. That is a hot startup. It's going to be on the podcast this week. If you're listening right now, here it is. This is Fort Knox, CNBC. I am John Fort here with the CEO of Snowflake, Frank Slootman. Good to have you. Yeah, good to be here. So tell me the story of how you ended up at Snowflake, because you were CEO of Data Domain, CEO of ServiceNow, took both of those companies public. And uh, number three, that's, um, that, that's kind of an interesting resume. I, uh, I didn't see it coming either. <laughs> um, you know, people like us, we've been in operating roles so long, sometimes we don't know, you know, how to be uh, without it. But, um, you know, I was, I was uh, uh, I'd stepped down from my role at, at ServiceNow, uh, had no plans, uh, was not looking, um, and uh, became slowly familiar with the company. And, you know, people like us, we're just, uh, you know, we, we, we really get dragged in by really compelling products. It's always about the product. This is the first product I've seen that was completely reimagined for the cloud. Not something that sort of was an on-premise product that was cloud-hosted, but they completely took a clean sheet of paper. And uh, you know, if you've been in software as long as I have, you know, you've lived with the constraints of hardware. You know, all software is designed around the constraints of hardware, and all of a sudden you see something like, wow, this can truly scale to cloud scale. Right? And that's, that's just uh, the, the, the promise that that offers. It's kind of mesmerizing, you know, because you think like, it's, you cannot even envision and foresee mm. what customers are going to do with this. How do you define what you're good at? 
right? Because you, you look at your track record, it's like, here's a guy who takes companies that are doing pretty well, have an idea that people agree is good, but boy, getting to an IPO is hard, and then getting past the IPO and maintaining momentum is hard. It seems to me from looking at it that people think, well, here's a guy who knows how to do those things. Is that the conversation that the recruiters have with you, and, and what is it that you developed that you think allows you to do that? Yeah, a lot of people think that I have a playbook, um, you know, like a football coach. Uh, <laughs> it's really not like that. We are incredibly situational. Uh, what that means is, you know, we deal with the situation that we encounter. We become the CEOs that the situation dictates. Um, and one thing that is consistent across all the companies we've run is we bring an extremely strong focus on, on the business outcome, on, the, business, on, the, on the, the mission of the company. And that's, and that's not easy to do. Uh, you know, companies usually lack uh, the intensity, the velocity, the focus, the standards, the quality. Uh, there's a lot of room up. You know, we always like to say in, in professional sports, you see a team go from, from losing to winning in one season with the same roster. How does that happen? Uh, it's just surely the intensity and focus of the leadership uh, on the team can make that happen. And uh, you can get results very quickly that way. You're talking about we and what we do. Who's we? Well, I, I always talk in plural terms. I, I want to be inclusive in that sense. It's not about me. It's mm. about the team. Uh, there's, I've been fortunate that I've had people that have uh, come with me from company to company. Uh, there's a very high trust and there's a very high expectation among us about how we operate. We don't have long conversations. We just don't need to. <laughs> we already know the answer. You know? so, how many people? At Snowflake? No, that come with you from company to company. Tends well, to be. that varies also, but yeah. it's certainly in the dozens. We don't try to completely overwhelm, you know, the new company with people from the old company, but we take our we take our picks, and you know, it's, it's 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 a free market. If people want to have that opportunity, then you know, they should have it. Right? Um, give me a for example. Like, is this you come in to Snowflake, uh, or probably even before you come in, you're assessing its technology, you're assessing its culture, its management. Are you even then having conversations about who you want to bring in and who else is interested? Or how does that thinking work? Because it's, it's an interesting team-based approach. Uh, it's a very good question. And, and the answer is yes, that happens before we actually uh, walk through the door. Um, so we sometimes, uh, you know, it's about eliminating unknowns. Um, because the, the, the narrower the set of issues I have to deal with as a CEO, the more focus I can apply to the effort. So if I can eliminate unknowns with knowns, um, that, is, that is a huge step forward. So, you know, for example, um, you know, Mike Scarpelli, our chief financial officer, this is now the third company that he and I have worked together. We have a very, very high trust relationship. He plays defense, I play offense. Uh, there's a few more, you know, of that, of that ilk, right? And, uh, you know, that's why we, we, we progress very, very quickly, because we don't sort of have to start the process from scratch. That's about the fourth or fifth uh, sports metaphor that you use, so I got to ask, what's your athletic background? Uh, I've, been a, uh, I've been a regatta sailor, so I've been campaigning, uh, you know, Grand Prix race boats, you know, on the West Coast and, and other places. So that's been my passion. You know. uh, for how long? Oh, um, for as long as I can remember almost. Not at that scale, obviously, but started out sailing small boats as a kid and sort of progressed over the years, you know. And tell me about that. Like, as you were doing that, what were you studying? What were your passions even as you were developing? 
You know, and the interesting thing about sailboat racing is it is scarily analogous to what happens in business. It, yeah. it, is, it is how good are the sailors in their positions. It's the teamwork, it's the conditions. It is competition. What do they do? What do we do? And, uh, you know, what I, what I love about, about sailing as it relates to business, immediate feedback. <laughs> you make the wrong move. You know it. Whereas in business, oftentimes it takes time to find out, you know, whether you made the right or the wrong move. And the, the, the more feedback, the better. This is why I enjoy running smaller companies, because the feedback is so direct and so intense. Right? Founders of Oracle and SAP also have a kind of sailing background. Uh, enjoy that. Actually, uh, now that I think of it, uh, Tom Siebel as well Correct. has also been uh, yep. on the podcast. What's the connection there, if any, between like enterprise software and, and sailing? Shantanu Narayan actually uh, has a background in sailing. I'm, I'm starting to think of the other CEOs I've talked to who have mentioned sailing. Is there some connection between enterprise software or software and sailing or just coincidence? You think? It's probably a coincidence. You know, many times I wish I was a better golfer because a lot of what goes on in our world happens in the world of golf. Right. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I don't contribute as well in that arena. <laughs> um, when did you get to Silicon Valley? Uh, 1997. And that is right uh, three, four years, three years left in the dot-com boom. Uh, what was that initial experience like and how did you experience the bust? Um, it was an extremely heady time. Uh, also quite shell-shocked uh, because I, uh, I was actually coming from Europe at the time. I worked for a fairly traditional Michigan-based software company. Coming into Silicon Valley in those days was something else. I mean, people were walking across the parking lot to pick up another job for, you know, better pay and better equity. Uh, and we're like, how do we deal with this, right? I mean, the, it, the, I mean, Silicon Valley is like a reconstituting beehive, right? I mean, companies come and go, but the people just reconstitute in new companies over and over and over again. And you got to get used to that philosophy and that inherent instability that exists in that place. If you're not, if, if, you, if you don't, if you're not willing to embrace that, you're gonna struggle. You mm -hmm. know? Twenty-two years later, it feels Silicon Valley when when I visit and I lived there for for quite a while feels different to me in that. Back then, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, th there seemed to be more of an attitude that the startups had it, like the startups alone. And there were a few public companies that, that, that were impressive, but mostly to me, the energy was around startups. Now, bigger companies are carrying a lot more of the energy. There's not, it seems to me, as much of the idea that they've lost it and, and, and they're heading downhill. Am I, am I reading that right or wrong? Um. You know, it, it all sort of depends on what tectonic shifts are going on. Uh, when you have big platform changes, it gives rise to, to new companies. But uh, it may be that these are not short uh, trends. In other words, they take, you know, 10, 20 years to play out. Like public cloud, I mean, Amazon didn't start until like 2006 timeframe, really didn't get up to speed until sort of 2010, 2012. Microsoft's still very new. Google is very, very new still. Um, so these things are still in the beginning stages. We, we act like, oh, that's sort of been there. No, I mean, it's beginning, mm -hmm. right? So has it given rise to new companies? Well, certainly, uh, you know, I mean, Amazon is obviously a, a juggernaut. But they already existed uh, in the previous, you know, boom-bust uh, cycle. 
but you know what? There will be a lot of new companies uh, because companies have to completely reinvent themselves or it's going to be somebody else, you know, like a snowflake that's going to say like, hey, you know, we don't have the legacy. You know, we don't have the baggage. We can move forward with a completely clean sheet of paper. And people ask us, do you run on a private cloud? And we're like, no. Because you, you'll be going to the public cloud before we ever go to the private cloud. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Give me your take on the different cloud personalities of those three companies. <laughs> um, Amazon, by far, the most mature. Understandably, we do probably 85% uh, of our business on Amazon. It's a very disciplined company. Uh, their, uh, their field compensation systems are, are well aligned. Um, and uh, you know, the, the way they campaign with partners, uh, very well organized, right? You get to, uh, to Microsoft, who's sort of the next tier uh, you know, player. And Microsoft is still you know, working through becoming an open platform. It historically has not been, and now they need to be. They really have to accommodate people uh, like Snowflake because customers like to have choice. Now, that's, that's not easy culturally for a company like Microsoft. You know, who was sort of, you know, an extremely dominant entity in the, in the 90s, right? I mean, I lived it. <laughs> there was extraordinary power there, yeah. right? Google, on the other hand, is like, you know, and I'm, you know, I've known Thomas Curian for many, many years, and uh, he's no slouch, you know, he, he is going to turbocharge uh, that business. And, um, you know, um, I, I think of, of all people out there, I think he, he certainly understands what needs to be done. And he's going to do it, but he has uh, more territory to cover. There's, there's many incentive, systems, uh, incentive systems and programs that you need to have in order to make this whole model work. And you know, sometimes they're coming at this like, what is this? How does this all work? <laughs> and that takes a few turns before you know people sort of sort that out. And Amazon is, is by far the most mature on that. I've talked to Thomas Curian a couple times about the way he's trying to reorganize and has reorganized the sales organization to, to move at a different pace, especially when it comes to larger customers. Is that the, the kind of drive that you're talking about? Yeah, and I think probably uh, he understands very well that the scale at which uh, a sales organization has to execute for that level of investment that they have in their public cloud is, is enormous. And um, you, you can't do that with a handful of salespeople. It's going to be Massive, absolutely massive, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a huge market. And uh, the the biggest uh, thing that that Google needed to develop was an enterprise posture, right? An enterprise posture means you need to be able to engage with an enterprise when they call, if they can even call you because you have a phone number, right? You need to be able to engage constructively, right? Know where you're talking about, timely manner, not too many iterations. When you don't have that, your technology can be really good but your posture is not there. And then your customers are going to go like, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this. If I'm in real trouble, I need you know, people to engage with me the way I expect to. And I think that Thomas is, 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 going to bring, is bringing that to Google. Tell me about culture when it comes to Snowflake and, and other companies that you worked with. Snowflake recently got this award, great place to work. Uh, how much of that do you credit to things that your team has changed? over the past couple of years, and uh, what are the main couple of priorities that you focus on to make the workplace, the workforce, what you want it to be? You know, the, the way I, uh, I approach my role uh, is that 
I have to deliver for our investors and for our employees, right? And our employees are also investors. There's nothing more important for me than I need to make sure that our employees have the career experience that they're seeking, but they're also expecting, you know, to get to a different station in life as a function of the experience that they have with us. So I, I put all the focus on, you know, not so much on lattes and neck rubs, but on us succeeding as a team. So what does that look like? Because well, I know what lattes and neck rubs look like. There are campuses where those are big and the free food and whatnot. What, what, are, what are the key things that you yeah. do that you think your employees care well, most about? Let me about? give you an example, right? Uh, we have a very milk content posture and attitude. What does that mean? We're never happy, okay? We're never happy with anything. And Silicon Valley is very much a high-fiving, self-congratulatory culture. They love to just do a victory lap. We're not into that. I'm only into seeing a difference between where we are and where we could be, right? And that's what I want to talk about. That's hard. Yeah. People want to be patted on the back and you sort of feel good. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm into not feeling good. How's that for a change, you know? Do you have any millennials working for you? Now, I'm not down on millennials. Snowflakes. But you know? yeah, I mean, the, the rap on millennials is they need all this coddle, which hasn't been my experience, but had, had you gotten any pushback, even at the board level, anybody saying, they're not going to go for this. It's a competitive recruiting environment. You can't tell people that it's not good enough. Yeah. Fund fundamentally, I think whatever generation you talk to, they want the same thing. They want to succeed in their careers and they want to make some money along the way for their families. Nothing will ever change in that equation. There's a lot of rhetoric and noise. It means really nothing, right? Um, the company succeeds, they succeed, everybody will be you know, doing cartwheels. I'll guarantee it. <laughs> All right, so. now we, we, we talked a bit on CNBC about the prospects for an IPO. How far off do you think it is? I don't think it will be, if, if, if we were to go out, it will not be any sooner than early summer uh, next year. That'd be the earliest that I could see it happen. Then it becomes, uh, uh, if that doesn't happen for whatever reason, then it's post-election and then it's, it depends on, you know, what does the world look like post-election. Um, but that would be the absolute earliest. Um, you know, I don't feel any pressure from our board of directors. Um, there's always sort of what they call the implied social contract, you know, when people expect to go public at some point, right? And I, I feel there's kind of an optimal time. Some companies stay private too long, mm. and then you get a lot of angst that builds up in organizations, like why haven't we gone and all this sort of thing. You're talking about employees now. Yeah, yeah. well, because it's, you know, why do companies go public? Because they, they need to achieve liquidity, and uh, investors typically have far more ability to sit out long periods of time, where employees, like, you know, they got four years, five years, six years into it, they go like, you know what, right? Um, so um, we're, uh, people always think that investors are pushing for IPOs. It's not the case at all. Uh, there's conversation going on right now about IPO versus direct listing. Are you open to, to, to the direct listing idea? You got a lot of experience with IPOs. Yeah, um, certainly open to it. Uh, we're actually heavily uh, studying and examining and understanding things. There's sort of two reasons why people uh, lean towards direct listings, or at least why I would. Right? I'm not saying I am, but, but why I could. One is I want to have far more control over the allocation of the primary shares, because it matters a whole lot who gets those. Um, you know, the investment bankers have their friends, but they're not necessarily my friends, okay? <laughs> right, as we saw with Yeah, Lyft secondly, and, uh, the big one, yeah. of course, is pricing, right? And um, 
you know, that's that's the single most contentious issue on IPO is pricing because, you know, everybody is looking for that free money the next day. And of course, for the company, that's that's lost income. Right. Right. So um, it is true that in this day and age, the investment bankers are far more let's just say flexible in terms of engaging with companies on the allocation as well as on the pricing. So they're, they're, I think that because of the DL, you know, the IPO process is, is going to try to adapt to it. So IPOs, uh, it's, it's not a slam dunk where you're like, oh, this is way better than the other. It's, it's, it's definitely not like that. And I think IPOs will achieve uh, a lot of the in, inherent shortcomings that people have historically experienced. I want to ask you about uh, the future of work, forces like automation having an impact on, on the workforce. In the next five to ten years, you look at AI and some of the applications of it across the organization, um, in products, in HR. Do you think it has a, a big impact or not so much? It, it will have a big impact. Um, and I certainly lived it uh, during my tenure uh, at ServiceNow because we essentially looked at, at enterprises as clouds. Basically, an enterprise is a digital experience. Uh, you don't go to HR anymore. HR is a digital experience. You don't see people. You interact digitally with the HR department. You know, they have search, they have knowledge, they have ways to get request process, all this kind of stuff. Every service domain in the enterprise is going to become a clout. I think government could become one giant clout. And we, I think we would like that. <laughs> yeah, depends <laughs> on what kind of cloud, I guess, but yeah. Right. I think the DMP might become a cloud. That would be yeah. great, you know? Um, so I, I think that there will be far fewer people working in enterprises other than in really maintaining, supporting, provisioning, resourcing that cloud digital experience. So I think that the, that's what work will look like in the future. And right along with that, um, I see companies now that are going without offices. They are office-less because the traffic is so bad. People waste so much time commuting. They're like, you know, so things like Zoom, you know, the, the guys from Zoom are trying to really enable that, that office-less work environment. And I think that in Silicon Valley, obviously, we need that. We got some of the worst traffic in the country, you know. So. We do indeed. I'm not looking forward to facing it in a couple days, but I will be. Frank Slootman, CEO of Snowflake. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.